First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate. I have I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway. All right. All right. In five, four, three, two. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by everybody I know. Yogi Poyle. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And uh, so this week, on uh, we're talking about charter schools, and we're talking about billionaires and their relation to charter schools. And uh, we're, we're very pleased to have a very special guest with us who's uh, an expert on this subject and uh, a person whose work that I've read and uh, enjoyed for a long time now. Uh, today, we're joined by Freddie DeBauer. Hi, how's, how's it going? Uh, yeah, my name's Freddie. Uh, I am uh, a uh, uh, administrator at Brooklyn College, where I run the Office of Academic Assessment. So I do uh, uh, evaluating student learning uh, professionally. Um, I have a, a PhD from uh, Purdue University, where I studied applied linguistics, test theory. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on um, uh, the CLA Plus, which is a test of a standardized test of college learning. Uh, and I've written a bunch about uh, education online. Did I get your last name right? DeBoer. DeBoer, like the Boer War, right? Yeah, exactly. Not DeBauer, like Jack Bauer. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, but thank you. War. <laughs> but thank you so much for being with us, Freddie. Uh, oh, actually, I have a piece of disclosure I should probably yes, say. Of course. Um, I am a member of uh, New York State United Teachers and of the American Federation of Teachers Local 2334. Right. So just for a little bit of background. So people would say, oh, you shouldn't listen to him about charter schools. He's got his own biases because he's a union person. And mm-hmm. but and that is actually, I think, a, an interesting or the main focus of charter schools is that uh, some of them are unionized, but I would say the majority are not unionized. And um, it is something where when we talk about, you know, the billionaires who promote charter schools, just to give you a few examples, go through. Uh, Michael Bloomberg was the mayor for a while. He tripled his net worth during that time, but he was Quintupled. a major force in getting charter schools off the ground in uh, New York City. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is a Facebook billionaire. He spent like $100 million putting uh, uh, in t- putting into charter schools in Newark, uh, New Jersey. Right. Uh, Bill Gates, of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation almost single-handedly is responsible for charters in Washington State. Um, the Waltons, the Walmart family, uh, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, Reed Hastings, the Netflix billionaire, is uh, was instrumental in getting California to lift the cap on the number of charters in 1998. And then, of course, you have uh, Doris and Don Fisher, the founders of The Gap. Mainly all of education. I wondered why the new Stranger Things was about the limitations of unionized public schools. <laughs> hmm. uh, now, I didn't hear Jeff Bezos on that, and that's Probably just because he doesn't give money to anything. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be setting up the first charters on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> but it is something where it's like, uh, you know, so billionaires, they talk about their philanthropic giving and they will often uh, cite that as a reason why you shouldn't raise taxes. It's like, I'm already doing so much better work myself. Mm-hmm. But it's like a lot of that work is, is going into charters, uh, you know, Carl Icahn, another person. But 
but I guess my point is it's interesting where you can't really get inside their head, but you assume they've set up some sort of justification where they think the problem is that schools are bad and not that the people going into schools are often poor or, uh, you know, hungry or, you know, they need lunch, these kinds of things, you know? And um, I guess I actually wanted to, to quote um, from... Uh, from one article you wrote here, Freddie, because you talk about um, these market forces and charters that this supposedly bring that the public schools lack. You say, reform types love to argue that market forces compel schools to promote student learning, but this is incorrect on its face. Market forces compel charter schools to please parents, which is not at all the same thing. And essentially, you, you make the argument that charters really kind of create a race to the bottom with trying to... Um, uh, advertise and lure parents into sending their children there essentially in a way that public school does not yeah i mean i think it's uh important to to zoom out a little bit and to say okay you know what is the uh the fundamental sort of idea behind charter schools and the, the fundamental idea is um that if you increase choice then you necessarily increase quality mm-hmm. um and this is to begin with uh you know this is a very conservative idea on its face, even though many of the people who promote charter schools call themselves uh, uh, liberals. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, you can make the identical argument about pu- public transit. Right? Sure. And people have. They say, oh, you know, uh, there's no competition for the MTA. That's why the MTA is so bad. Right, right. We should pull uh, money from the MTA and spin it out into different private corporations that could then compete. And whoever does the best job, will ri- the cream will rise to the top. Um, the problem with this thinking, even if we wanted to, even if we were cool with sort of um, removing public accountability and gutting public institutions, is that a child's brain is not like a widget in a factory, right? right? So that's, that's where all of these, these analogies, these conservative analogies to business come from, is the idea, well, if I've got a factory, uh, I build a, a widget, and you've got a factory, you build a widget, whosoever widget is better will, you know, will win. Right? Mm-hmm. But we don't have direct control over a child's brain in the way that we do over a widget in a factory. So if we wanted to really make that analogy, well, okay, you build a widget, but in fact, somebody else builds the widget, right, at birth, and uh, they take care of the widget during its most important formative years, (laughs) right? right? right. Uh, When um, in a vast amount of important parts of their personality are imprinted on them, uh, you only get the widget after four or five years and it gets into your system, but you only see the widget for six hours a day, five days a week. You then send the widget home. Sometimes the homes that are broken homes, the homes that uh, are filled with violence or mm-hmm. drug abuse, and then you get the widget back. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sometimes the widget comes to school hungry, comes to the factory hungry. Right. Sometimes uh, the widget uh, doesn't have adequate clothes for winter. And so at the end of that process, if you look at that widget and you say, look at this shitty widget, look how beat up it is, and you say, you're the problem. The factory is the problem. <laughs> right, right, right. That, that is not uh, rational even under the, even if we accept the logic of charter schools. Mm. I think that widget ended up in my TV stand. <laughs> it doesn't really... It doesn't really do anything. Yeah. It doesn't. It just kind of hangs out. But no, and I totally agree with that. And um, it is just something where you talk about uh, backfilling. Mm-hmm. I guess you talk about survivorship bias. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I guess before we even get into that, we should mention I guess democratic accountability, because that's an important thing. Where I would say 
even good faith charter reformers essentially believe that democracy is the problem with education in the United States. I mean, that's the what makes a charter school a charter school is precisely its ability to evade public accountability. I mean, if you you know, there's many different kinds of charters and many different charter systems, but the one thing that unites them all is that their supposed market advantage is the ability to not be under the control of local people. Right, right. I don't like that, and I don't like charters because I like democracy. Mm-hmm. I think democracy works. I think that um, local control of, over local public institutions is absolutely essential, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that um, the, the sort of the yen for doing away with. Uh, the free fundamental rights of the members of a local community who fund a given school district to have a say in how that um, school runs uh, is very disturbing to me. Right. And so, you know, local schools are controlled through local elected school boards, essentially. Right. And if you as a parent really don't like something about how the school board is going, not only can you petition the school board or not only can you petition um, the superintendent, you have the power to organize democratically to get members of the school board removed and replaced. Mm-hmm. And in some school, some school districts, some, some cities, you have the ability to get the superintendent of schools removed. Um, and that is your your only real lever over what happens at your student school in the macro sense. Um, and we're denying that lever to people. Um, and it, I think it's particularly cynical when we think about the poorest people mm-hmm. who don't have the resources necessary to move their kids to, into private schools. Right. Um, they're the ones who are have the most to lose from this disenfranchisement. Now, um, if I may take advantage of this to... Um, win conversations I've had over beer years ago. Mm. Um, one of the main arguments, or one argument I've heard uh, for charter schools is that it's better because um, the teachers aren't unionized so you can fire bad teachers. <laughs> mm. uh, it, is there any merit to that at all? Well, so uh, despite what some people will say, it, it remains the fact that we do not know how to evaluate who is or is not a good teacher. Uh, there are all manner of selection effects that are built in, as um, I write about an awful lot. Um, efforts to um, institutionalize uh, uh, teacher evaluation systems have had a re- remarkable problems. So, for example, here in New York, uh, programs, pilot programs in student merit pay, for example, uh, where uh, excuse me, teacher merit pay, where teachers are uh, paid more or less depending upon how well their students do were suspended because they kept giving incoherent results. In other words, one semester a teacher would be the very best teacher in the system. The next semester they'd be among the very worst. Um, or there have been times uh, at other, in other uh, institutions where uh, a teacher's uh, 9 a.m. Uh, science class um, is one of the highest scoring mm-hmm. and their 2 p.m. Uh, science class is one of the lowest scoring. So I would just reject the notion that we have the currently have the ability to accurately investigate um, teacher quality. Yeah, there's so many variables in what makes students benefit from the class size to what their home life is to all of it. Um, Is charter schools in general a newer concept? How long have these things been around? Well, there's been charter school, uh, there have been charter schools since the 1970s. I guess I would say in their modern, in their, what, something like the, approaching their modern form. Right. Um, but the movement really got rolling in the late uh, 1990s. Um, that was when you started to see places like New York, um, uh, where charter schools stopped being 
these sort of rare one-off magnet type of situations to being like a real sort of system systemic force and a real attempt by people in power to uh, to undermine the uh, the public school system. Now, would it be fair to classify charter schools as uh, private schools? This is a different argument I've had. So um, I'm not sure that I would call them private. What I would resist calling them is public. So okay. in other words, there's, sense, yeah. there's no right, such thing as a, as a public charter, right? Um, so, okay, so there are schools that market and brand themselves as being charter schools that are just private schools, um, and that's mostly a matter of marketing. Um, do, do they benefit from calling themselves a charter school over a private school? Is that the reason? Yeah, I think I think it's just it's the hot thing. Yeah, sure, yeah. gotcha. Um, wow, branding in schools. Yeah. What a dark, stupid age we live in. Now, there are charter schools that uh, receive public money and yet um, operate essentially as for-profit entities. You know? mm-hmm. One of the things that I, uh, this is like a whole side quest, but um, in general, the, uh, the not-for-profit designation, like non-profit designation means nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So the perfect example are the ETS, or ETS, the, um, uh, uh, the, the uh, company that uh, produces um, the SAT and mm-hmm. the college board, um, technically nonprofit, but rake in uh, hundreds of millions of dollars right, of revenue. Right, right. right. Um, so, the reason I would I would never talk about I would never uh, refer to a public charter is because just because you're receiving public money, right? That's only one part of public, right? Mm-hmm. Public transit again is yes funded in large part by uh, government funds. But it also has public accountability, right? Mm-hmm. We have the ability to influence the M- MTA through our democratic processes. Um, there is no such uh, public accountability in public charters, so-called. Hmm. I would. Uh, so I did just want to kind of put the, let's say, libertarian John Stossel argument to you because I remember I watched some of his videos when I was a kid, and they convinced me at the time. Um, so essentially, he will talk about like. Okay, so if you're stuck in a, let's say, bad public school district, you have to send your kids there. But the idea, again, with these, like, uh, you know, charters or vouchers or whatever the case may be, it's like, oh, you can pick anyone. So even, like, if, say, you're mentioning uh, if they don't like their charter, there's no democratic accountability. It's a corporation. You can't do anything. But couldn't they just take them out of the charter and send them to a another charter i mean wouldn't that be the argument well yeah so and that again is, is sort of the sort of the market force mm-hmm. um but again the the question i mean this all comes back to the test score right? right i mean the thing that looms over all of these discussions is that the the currency of this debate is the test score and so uh, it's not sufficient for a parent to move their child from one charter school to another and to feel that they're getting a better um right. a better deal because um Frankly, the people in charge don't care about that, right? Nobody is going out and giving parent satisfaction surveys. Um, what they are doing is they're pushing for more and more intense and more and more frequent um, standardized testing. Right. Uh, and generically, this you know, I mean, I get a lot into this in my upcoming book, but um, generically, you move one particular kid across all different kinds of educational contexts. You take him from a pri- an East Coast private, small, boys-only high school, and you drop him in a uh, Los Angeles uh, public school. His relevant, his relative uh, performance—that is, in other words, his class rank—will mm-hmm. likely improve because of the systemic issues that make public schools, uh, LA public schools, suffer. But his 
absolute performance, like his test, his test score results, will, it, we can say with enormous confidence that they won't change much at all. Okay. In other words, moving students between different systems seems to have very little, uh, 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 seems to inspire very little change in, uh, in test scores. And, you know, uh, <clears throat> j just generically, most students sort themselves into ability bands very early on mm -hmm. in life and uh, stay in those ability bands for their entire educational experience. So, um, you know, third grade reading group is a really good predictor of whether you're going to finish college. Wow, really? Okay. Um, and, of course, we can predict third grade results fairly well from preschool results. Right? Sure. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's, this, there's this image of a student moving between different school types and different individual schools and having these wildly different um, outcomes, and that's just not what we see in, in, in reality. It's mostly students have a sort of set ability level, and they perform to that ability level um, generally regardless of where they go. And would you theorize that environmental factors are more the cause of that, essentially? I mean, we don't know, but... Well, so I, there's, there's a few things. I mean, I, I, uh, controversially, I do believe in the concept of natural academic talent. Right. I think that some people have, uh, just as there's natural like athletic talent, some people have are born with gifts, uh, academic gifts, and those kids are going to succeed no matter where they go, right? Yeah. Um, Here's a good example of the um, moving between schools and, and how little it can mean. Um, so you guys have likely heard of uh, these uh, public test schools in places like here in New York or in, uh, in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's called Latin something in Boston. Here, they present, for example, Stuyvesant is mm -hmm. a very famous um, to public test school. So Chris Hayes, who's a um, uh, a uh, uh, host at, on MSNBC, uh, went to uh, Stuyvesant. Um, uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda, uh, who created Hamilton, uh, went to Stuyvesant. Um, they have a, a set of alumni that Immortal like, Technique went there when he <laughs> beat up Lynn Manuel Miranda, <laughs> right, Chris Hayes, <laughs> right? Um, and they're you know, and they can they can you know boast these like I don't know like Supreme Court justices or whatever, and all these people who are extremely impressive who came out of there. So you say, okay, that's got to be a high quality school. Mm. They're really changing lives. But in fact, people did research uh, with similar schools. And uh, they use what's called a last-in, last-out model. So to get into those schools, you have to pass a, a particular cut score on an entrance exam, mm -hmm. which means that you have the advantage of over years, you have the data of people who just barely got in and barely got out, right? So you have people who um, scored very similarly in the test, but uh, had a completely different outcome of getting into the school or they didn't. Um, and then they looked at years down the line, things like their income, their employment status, all these markers of success. There's absolutely no difference between the kids who got into those schools and those who did not. Oh, wow. Right. It made no difference at all. Sure. In all of their um, economic uh, uh, life indicators, uh, they, the kids who didn't get in succeeded just as well. You say, why? Well, you say because they have a fundamental underlying talent, and getting into that school uh, – would have been great maybe for them socially or in terms of making connections, mm -hmm. but their talent still would have asserted itself. 
Um, and so that's just another example of um, these results are far more static than people want to think. And I get why people don't like that. Um, for a lot of people, it offends their sense of justice. Right. They, they think it's like, you know, cursing people to, um, you know, to uh, live lives of drudgery if you say that they don't have a lot of academic talent. Um, I do have quite a long political platform. I could tell them about how to save people <laughs> like that. Right. But that's a discussion for another day. Would you say then maybe the uh, German system's better where people who don't have the more academic uh, like background would, uh, or, you know, as much of an academic aptitude um, in Germany, you know, they're sent to more uh, vocational training courses for mm-hmm. a more, you know. Yeah, um, yeah that kind of rigid tracking, I think, um, as long as it's voluntary, right. I'm on board with <laughs> yeah, it. Right. Yeah. In the book, I advocate for um, creating at least two, maybe three paths in terms of vocational focus compared to academic and maybe a hybrid. Um, but it could be, would be chosen by the student and their parents. Sure, of course. Um, as long as they can move, um, I think that, that that can be a very helpful system. And in fact, you know, the the German uh, outcomes are quite good. Hmm. Don't don't give Freddie's critics ammo by having him endorse the German model. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, like, because I've read some of what you wrote about standardized chest testing, and you know, you said innate ability there, and it's like. I mean, I guess that's just the funhouse mirror of the internet where if there are people who characterize your position as essentially action T4 or whatever else, eugenics or Mm. or whatever, just absolutely ridiculous thing. And, you know, I I did find it interesting, like uh, Ava Moskowitz is, um, I believe I got her name right. Yeah, Ava Moskowitz is the founder of Success Academy, and she promotes charters with these exact kind of, well, let's say the language of social justice. But I mean, it's... So I don't know if it's anything innate to that or if it's just kind of the the moment that we're in. But, I mean, do you have any feelings about how these positions you have, which seem very reasonable to me, are are characterized this way? Well, the first thing is I genuinely don't believe that anyone actually disagrees with the concept of innate academic talent. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that everyone has observed uh, throughout their life that some kids did better at school than others. right? Right. And I, you know, I use the phrase academic talent carefully Um, I'm not interested in debating what is and is not intelligence. Certainly Mm -hmm. there are many different kinds of intelligence, and certainly I've known many people who sucked at school who were very intelligent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would like to think that I'm at least decently intelligent guy. I only had one semester in high school when I didn't fail math and science. Wow. Okay. Um, and it, and that, was, that, that semester was just because the, the teachers felt sorry for me that they didn't fail. <laughs> um, what year was that? Uh, you can see, maybe say how old I am. <laughs> yeah. um, grad- no, I meant like which, uh, which grade was it? Sorry, not, oh, not, no. not what year. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, uh, uh, well, well, not to be a bummer, it was, uh, I was orphaned in high school and uh, – and so is the teacher's like, oh, let's throw this guy yeah, a bone. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense, yeah. It's like, thank guys. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just, I don't, like, I fundamentally don't think that people really believe there's no uh, inborn or natural academic talent. The other thing is that it's very strange because in certain wings of academia, the relevant wings, uh, behavioral genetics, um, the fact that, uh, academic ability is partially, partially uh, genetic, partially heritable. That is, um, you know, passed down from parents to children. 
uh, is just an absolutely banal statement of fact mm -hmm. because that finding, uh, the, the heritability of performance on standardized tests, um, is one of the most well-replicated findings in the history of social science. It is, there are uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of studies that have found the same result over and over again. Um, that's twin studies. So you look at identical twins raised apart and you see how... Uh, Dr. Mangala's. <laughs> you see how... <laughs> not, not those twin studies. <laughs> how, how similar or different um, the twins are. Uh, and in fact, uh, twins raised apart are more like each other than they are like their adopted siblings. Right, right. Um, you look at uh, ad adoption studies. So you look at... Um, Parent trap. Parent trap. You look at uh, uh, kids who are adopted into other homes. By the time that they reach high school, um, they are uh, the adopted kid is much more like their biological parent uh, academically than they are like the, like the adopted parent. Right. And now finally, we have genome-wide association studies. There's a big one. I was written up in the New York Times maybe one year ago, maybe two years ago, by Carl Zimmer, um, which found um, many uh, variations, you know, SNPs, single nucleotide poly polymorphisms, um, you know, just little uh, differences in the genetic code that are associated with academic performance. Um, I, again, this is not, the important thing is that this is about individual difference, right? Not group difference, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of people want to say, oh, this, this is, scientific racism, but it's, I'm not talking at all about group difference. I don't think there's any group differences in inherent academic ability at all. I don't believe that uh, black people are less intelligent than white. I don't think that um, men are better at math than women. I don't believe that uh, Asian people have some sort of natural facility for science. I don't believe any of that stuff. But on the individual level, right, so from parent to child, um, it's really hard to uh, uh, argue against the weight of the evidence. And in, in a certain sense, of course, academic ability would be somewhat heritable, right? Sure, sure. Evolution, the brain is an evolved organ, right? And it is thus uh, subject to uh, genetic influence the way any other part of our body is. Evolution from the neck down doesn't make any sense to me. Hmm. Do you... Um do you think there's anything to like the epigenetic explanation for um, stressors on early life, like changing your genetic code to make you do better in school? Um, I think or worse. I, I I would not be surprised at all if some of those some of those studies are, are correct. Yeah. Um, so uh, the you know the idea that I mean epigenetics was interesting in that for a little while it was kind of the hot academic fashion. And whenever that happens, some people take it too far. Um, but that doesn't mean that the original observations weren't correct. And I think absolutely, yeah, past traumas, uh, traumas in previous generations um, could imprint themselves uh, on uh, the DNA of the parents and influence outcomes. Yeah, that's, that's why I failed eighth grade chemistry was Oliver Cromwell. Yeah. And that's why I passed eighth grade chemistry was because my parents <laughs> were carrying out Oliver Cromwell's <laughs> bidding. <laughs> Um, the thing you mentioned about how some people would look at it like it's bigotry. Do you think those arguments come from the elite that are advocating these type of schools? Or is it just a misunderstanding of the research that is out there about what's going on? I think the first thing is just a misunderstanding. I, um, here's the analogy that I've used before. Suppose you go to a basketball game and LeBron James' son, Bronny, is playing. Now, Bronny James is a... Um, a top tier, you know, five star uh, basketball prospect um, who will be in college in a couple of years, I think, um, or the league. Uh, 
if you went to that basketball game and you saw him play and you turned to his friend and said, that kid's good at basketball because he's black, right? That would be a claim about group difference, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I would agree if, if someone said that was racist, you know, I would agree that that is an offensive thing to say, right? But if you went to a Bronny James basketball game and you said, he's good at basketball because LeBron James is his dad, that wouldn't be crazy. Right, that would right. be the most natural thing in the world to assume, right? I'm making the second kind of claim, right? I'm talking about the relationship between parents and their children, not between races and their children. Right. Um, do people opportunistically take, take advantage of that to sort of deny the existence of, uh, of uh, natural talent? They do. And, you know, look, I read a lot of education um, literature, a lot of um, published studies, uh, things from think tanks. You can read dozens and dozens of them. And the very idea of natural talent just does not come up. Like the very idea that some students are just better at school than others is, is sort of like this uh, uh, big secret in, in education in many ways that people just don't want to talk about it. Well, I work for a company that teaches kids to learn and love math, and we have uh, animations and interactive uh, web applications. Uh, so I, I think it's just a couple more years until the results disprove what you're saying. Mm. Well, uh, I, I, you know, I would be thrilled to be disproved. To be disproven. <laughs> I would much rather live in a world where everyone's um, educational outcomes are perfectly malleable. But look here, let's you know, um, forget about genetics then. Okay, um, let's let's not even worry about the cause. What what we know for sure is that some students end up with significantly better academic ability than other students. And whatever the cause, the, you know, that academic ability does not appear to be particularly mutable, right? The idea that like every student's, uh, this unmolded jar of clay or, or uh, ball of clay that you can just twist into whatever position you wanna be is simply belied by the data. Again, as I said, and I'll say again, most students sort themselves into a particular ability band and they stay in that band throughout their education. And I think that most people who are listening to this will think back to their school uh, experience and, you know, the kids who were in the, the top reading group in first grade were probably still the smart kids in high school. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, if, are there exceptions? Of course, there's individual exceptions. If we're talking about big groups. There's always variability. But in general, that's true. And so you mentioned your new book. It's called Cult of the Smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's due to be published, you said, summer 2020. That's right. And uh, it deals with these things we're talking about here, but also charters as well, yeah. I would assume, yeah. And yeah I mean, I guess the basic, uh, the basic argument is this. Uh, and I've changed this elevator pitch a thousand <laughs> times and will again. So in the late uh, 20th century, in the last several decades of the t- 20th century, uh, the American economy changed in a really profound way. We saw the demise of jobs for people without college educations that nonetheless were able to provide a solid middle-class existence. Now, the causes of this, the scope, these are all things that are debated, you know, the degree to which this was manufacturing or whatever. Um, I can't speak on that stuff. But one thing is sure, for sure, is that um, over time, it became harder and harder to build a good life for yourself if you didn't have a college education. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, the policy apparatus woke up to this. And they said, okay, what are we going to do about this? Now, if you have a system that only rewards people who have academic abilities, you could do something to change that system. 
but rather they did the opposite, which is they said, if the economic advantages go to the smart kids, we're going to make everyone a smart kid. Mm. I mean, and, and that really right, is, at right. the, is at the center of the education reform movement. It's the idea that we can make everyone one of the smart kids, and that's how we're going to save our economy and our people. There's two problems with this. Number one is that if everyone's a smart kid, nobody is, that academic distinctions are valuable precisely because they are distributed unevenly. In other words, uh, a college education is, uh, has financial value. I'm not talking about the, the other values, right, which are great, right. but the financial value of a college education um, depends in large part on the fact that it's a rare good still, right? Two-thirds of American adults don't have a college education. Uh, the National Bureau of, e of Economic Research did some research in uh, 2006, and they looked at, over time, in, over the 20th century, how the college wage premium, so the advantage that you got by having a college degree, um, changed over time. And what they found was that it was a pretty simple ratio, uh, the comparison between the number of jobs that required a college degree and the number of people that had a college degree. And unsurprisingly, when there were more jobs than there were people, right? Uh, excuse me, when there, were, uh, when there were more people than there were jobs, the, uh, uh, the advantage of having a college degree went down. Right. When there were more, uh, when there was uh, fewer uh, people with college degrees relative to the jobs that needed them, their economic advantage went up. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen when everyone has a college degree? We're already seeing a race higher and higher with more and more people getting master's degrees because mm -hmm. they feel that they need the new credential. So that's right. problem number one. Problem number two is we have no ability to make all the kids smart kids. Um, we have mountains of testing data to demonstrate that we can't do that. Um, there's never been anything in the history of education in the world in, in the history of the world um, as ambitious as what we're trying to do. Like for example, No Child Left Behind which was not only had no country ever accomplished such a, a thing in terms of raising test scores, no country had ever attempted it before, and for good reason, um, we can't do it. We're not going to make all the smart kids, all the kids the smart kids. Um, and the book is an articulation of that idea and an articulation of a, a better system. I did want to, so one thing just on the causation, um, I mean, my personal theory on this is unions, you know, and so, like, I always use the example of my father, he, he had a high school degree, he loaded baggage on the airline for U.S. Airways, he was part of the Teamsters Union, he could buy a house, and you look at this, you know, like, peak in the United States, private sector, 33-ish percent uh, unionization down to 6% today, and so it is just something where if if you do think the cause is unions, then charters would, if anything, exacerbate that mm -hmm. by destroying unionized teachers' movements, which not only give themselves, you know, good wages and benefits, but by having unionized workforce, you know, benefit the entire uh, workforce. Mm. Um, uh, my best friend growing up, uh, he, uh, his father uh, works at, still works at Pratt & Whitney, uh, which is a, a company that makes uh, a jet engines. Um, he got a job uh, right out of high school there. Um, he started out on the assembly line. He now does real deal engineering, uh, doesn't have yeah. a degree, but yeah. he's been grandfathered in, could never get a job yeah. there today. Right. Um, he was able to uh, buy a house, a couple of cars, put three sons through college. And his son, who does have a college degree, is, works at Whole Foods because, <laughs> the, uh, you know, yeah. because the market is that tough. So, I think that dynamic of having like people with PhDs eventually, if this uh, 
persist becoming day laborers yeah. will be um, it's more a result of the existence and acceptance of unemployment as just something that you can't change. Mm. And so like some of the ideas out there, like a federal jobs guarantee. So we can't have everyone being the smart kid and we have to accept a certain unequal mm. distribution of academic talent. Fine. But we do have unlimited jobs that we could distribute. Yeah. So I'm that would be a way to ameliorate that problem and get away from academic talent is the only pathway to a decent economic life. Yeah. You know, there's this big universal basic income versus jobs guarantee fight going on within the American left right now. And I'm completely agnostic. I mean, my, my position is I'll, I'll take either. You know? Sure, sure. <laughs> I'll take either or both. Yeah. Why not both? Um, yeah. yeah, either or both. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is one of the things that I say is like, um, it is profoundly strange to have an entire economic system where the only lever the policymakers think they have is educational. It's profoundly strange to see all these problems in our economy and say, well, we have to start at the very beginning of life, and we have to use these effects that are incredibly um, vague, and uh, the, everything that we're hoping to happen was going to happen well, well downstream. It's hard to see the impact. It's just a very weird way to go about creating a public policy. Right. Mm -hmm. I think, frankly, we can't, you know, with the ch climate challenges facing us, we can't afford to restrict our labor force in this way. Mm. There's too much work to be done, basically. Yeah. So, like, why why would you have a system where you uh, are relying on um, identifying natural academic talent as the means of uh, supplying all of the labor force that we're going to need? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and again, like, I, you know, I will I will insist on repeating this point. Once every kid gets a 1600 on the SAT, suppose that was possible, what is the economic value of a 1600? Right, right, right. It yeah, literally a, drops to like, zero. Okay, yeah. so some of those 1600s are going to be, still have to be, you know, unemployed or janitors in our system. You can talk to your uh, cashier about Kant. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that the, like, definition of intelligence in this country is a little too narrow? Because... Like the individual you mentioned who like worked his way up at the, the Pratt-Whitley uh, job. Mm -hmm. I find that, um, you know, I, I dropped out of college in high school because I, I, I realized that I wasn't doing anything that required me to need to go through those, whole, uh, those paths. And um, I remember very much thinking that, man, we all know how to read, but so much of us don't have so many practical skills like, you know, something as simple as how engines for a car work to, you know... But that's not even considered in the realm of intelligence. So do you find that the definition is too narrow or how we look at it is too narrow? Yeah, I, th I, think, th I think both. I, you know, so this is one thing that I um, am somewhat on the defensive with, with this book, which is uh, people say, you know, fairly, um, your, when you talk about academic talent and you're talking about test scores and grades and uh, graduation rates, you know, you're, you're taking a very reductive view of... Um, of intelligence, but um, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that those things are coterminous with intelligence, right? I'm trying to say that um, those are the metrics that count to the powers that be, 
Those are the ones that um, help you through your life uh, pragmatically. And so those are the ones that I have to talk about. But absolutely, I, you know, I, I absolutely believe that everybody has their own version of intelligence. Um, and some people's just their potential is completely untapped because they're unfortunate enough to live in a world where what they're good at is not monetizable. Right. But, you know, um, it should come as no surprise that uh, under capitalism, ultimately, the, the definition of intelligence is dependent upon what can generate wealth. It's sort of that uh, goes back to that Einstein quote where he said, I think everyone's a genius. It's just if you tell a fish to climb a tree, it's going to think it's a moron. Right, right, right. Hey, everyone. So we're going to cut the conversation here on our free side. We continue the conversation on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash grubstakers. We want to say thank you for listening to this episode and a special thank you to our guest, Freddie DeBoer. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Talk to you later.